I was born in 1983 in a very small town in southeastern Ohio, a very rural town. I was raised in one house until I left for college, so 18 years on one house, the top of a hill overlooking the entire city. I grew up playing lots of sports, all kinds of sports, actually, and when I grew up, uh, 99% of the kids that I played with looked just like me. I went on and I went to high school. We had one high school in our entire county. Just think about that. One high school in an entire county. I know Katie has eight or nine. Cypress has 10. We had one in our entire county. So that shows you kind of how rural we were at. And so I went to that one high school. And at that one high school, 99% of the people looked just like me. All of my friends looked like me. It wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't a good thing. It's just how it was that I was surrounded with people that looked just like me because of where I grew up. And so I, I didn't have a lot of understanding about people that were different than me, whether that's color, whether that's religion. Like I just didn't have a lot of diversity around me. And so I began to form some thoughts and some ideas early on in life that I didn't even realize that I was forming. As I look back, I think of the things that specifically to the black community, the African-American community, what I thought of them, I didn't have any friends that were black. And so where I got my ideas of the black community was by watching TV, mostly sports. What I listened to in my CD, remember those shiny things that you have to put in? Uh, I will confess to you, there was a season in my life where I listened to DMX, where I listened to Nelly and 50 Cent. I've repented. You should have heard my playlist, you know, that where you can make your own CD. It was awesome. It was epic. I've got to confess to you that one of the other things that helped me understand the black community is that when we went to the big city, and when I say big city, I mean Columbus, Ohio, for me, was big. When we drive down certain streets, my mom would tell me to lock the doors. That was some of the perspective I had growing up. Now, as I was looking back and thinking, though, what I realized is it was actually much worse than that. Uh, I actually had and probably have relatives that are openly racist. I'm ashamed to tell you that. Not that I can control them, but it's the truth. I remember growing up and people telling jokes about people of different race, and they weren't kind jokes. They were very rude and crude. And people would either laugh or they would stand there awkwardly not knowing what to say. I even remember a story when I was at my grandparents' house after a Sunday morning service that we had all gone to and an extended relative of mine was there and he was bragging about how he had spit a big loogie on a car of a black man just because he was black. See, if you would have asked me, was I raised racist? I would have said, no, of course not. Like we love everybody. But as I was thinking this week, I was thinking, man, like, whether I knew it or not, there was things in my life that formed some opinions that I had, some stereotypes, some prejudices that I had that I probably wouldn't have verbalized but were really true and really at the core what formed me in my formative years. And so I had a perspective. And then I went to college. I went to, at the time, the largest university in the country, the Ohio State University. So not everything is bigger in Texas. I showed up and I was in the honors and scholars dorm and I show up to my dorm and 
what I find are a bunch of people that don't look like me, that don't sound like me. Some spoke different languages than me. Some had different gods than me, and some had no gods at all. Some were heterosexual, some were homosexual. Lots of skin color, lots of backgrounds from all over the world. All of this was in my dorm. And so my perspective began to change. Because my prejudices now had a face. My stereotypes didn't just have a face, they had a smile. And those smiles led to handshakes, and those handshakes led to stories, and those stories led to me changing the way I viewed other people. My perspective began to shift. And then something else happened drastically. I actually became a minority in the midst of a sea of minorities. I walked onto the football team. If you've watched college sports at any high level, you know that predominantly most of the young men that are on the football field are of darker complexion than I am. So I immediately became a minority in the midst of a bunch of minorities, and that changed my perspective forever. As I sat there in the locker room, I learned some things I didn't know as a southeastern Ohio country boy. I learned for the first time what ashy skin was. I had no idea. I learned that the best thing for ashy skin is cocoa, butter, lotion. I didn't know these things. I learned the difference between dreadlocks and cornrows. But I also learned that my brothers in this brotherhood of the football family, although they had different colors, they had a background, some similar to mine, some better, some worse. Some of them were way more affluently raised than I was. Some have a better family history. Some had better spiritual background than I have. But there was also some that were raised by a single mom who never had a job. There were some that were raised uh, in an area where gang violence was huge and they knew brothers and sisters, families and friends that had others killed. They knew that. There were some that had been pulled out of the gang that they had been raised in just so they could go to college to try to break out of the cycle and they had the tattoos of bloods to prove it. So my perspective began to shift and change for the better. And then I met Antonio. Uh, Antonio was a charismatic cornerback, and I was a wide receiver, so I hated him during practice, but I loved him all the other time. And so Antonio and I became good friends. He just happened to be black. And Antonio, were such good friends, and we spent so much time together, not just because we played football, but he was the only other person on the team that was also a mechanical engineering major. And so I spent more time with him than I did my bride that I had married in college. Antonio and I were like this. We studied in the physics building. We studied in the library. We studied in our athletic department. When we had away games and we had to fly to other places, we would study on the airplane together. Yes, we were those guys. On the bus rides back, he and I would be asking questions, looking at notes, studying and doing homework together. Me and Antonio became best friends, and we still are. And it changed my perspective on how I view other people and how I view the world. As I was preparing for this sermon just two nights ago, the Lord was just really stirring in me, thinking that the, the sermon I had prepared wasn't what I was supposed to teach because that, that sermon, it was really funny. Let me tell you, it was going to be really funny, but it wasn't what he had for me. And so last night I began to uh, say, God, like, if you want me to preach something else, then you, you better give me something really quick. And so uh, today <laughs> uh, I, I'm preaching a message that I felt was more relevant to the season that we're in as a country and as a church. And as I began to pray, God, what do you want to tell your people today? How do you want to use me to proclaim truth and proclaim hope? Uh, I called my buddy Antonio. (laughs) 
And I said, hey, man, how you doing? We caught up for a while. What are you doing? What are you into? And then I said, hey, Antonio, I, I called you because I'm about ready to address a thousand people tomorrow. And this nation has some things going on. This world has some things going on that are just chaotic. And so I called you because I love you, because I trust you, because I respect you, and you're an African-American male in this country. And so I want to hear your perspective. And he said, man, I'm honored. And he began to just tell me, we spent about 30 minutes of him just unloading wisdom, unloading insight, unloading just some real raw feelings that he had been experiencing, not all of which were bad, both sides of the coin. And the two things that I took away from my conversation with Antonio, he said, number one, we have no hope without God. No hope. He said, we can, we can do whatever we want to do. We can have all these rallies. We can do everything. But without God in our schools, without God in our public affairs, without God in our government, without God even in our church, believe it or not. That's what he said. That, that was good. He said, we have no hope. No hope for reconciliation. No hope for seeing this ever to come to an end. We have no hope apart from God. And then he said something else that was really interesting. He said, Derek, you know what else we don't have hope? is if we don't start to love ourselves. And I said, unpack that a little bit, Antonio. What do you mean by that? And he said, well, what I know is that if I don't love myself, I can't love somebody else. And if I don't love myself, my my value, my worth that I place on my life, it's going to be pretty low because I don't feel like I'm worthy of love. And when I ascribe a low worth to my life, I begin to ascribe a low worth to somebody else's life. And that comes out in my words, in my actions, in my decisions. He says, you look at all the violence that's happened. I I guarantee you, most of the time, he said, that the people that are the perpetrators of violence, the people that are spewing hate, those people don't love themselves. And he said, if we're going to have any hope, we've got to get down to the basics of, man, without God, we have none. And if we don't love ourselves, there really is no hope. And I ended the conversation by just telling him how much uh, I appreciate him, uh, how proud I am of what he's doing in life, married, entrepreneur, just crushing it in Ohio, and told him how much I loved him, and I appreciated his words, and hung up the phone and began to prepare my sermon today. And as I look back with my relationship with Antonio, what I learned is that when you have a relationship with somebody, it's much harder to discriminate against them. It's hard to objectify someone if you look them in the eyes. It's hard to hate someone once you've shaken their hand and heard their story. And so maybe today you're confused about the status of our country, where we're at. Is this really a black versus white? Is this a blue versus black? Is this a black versus blue? Is this a nation versus the world? Or are we all against everybody? Maybe you're just confused today. Uh, So as I was preparing, I was like, God, what what do you want me? This is a huge Bible, and I've got now just a couple hours before I have to go to sleep. What what do you want me to to talk about? And, And what it was continuing to affirm in me is what Antonio spoke to me. He said, Derek, apart from Jesus, there is no hope. There is no hope, and that's not a trite statement. And then I was thinking, Jesus, yeah, that's right, but, but what does that look like? And the, 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 the framework came, continued to keep coming. Jesus is perfect theology. So, so whatever theology you're studying, continue to do that. But if your theology doesn't line up with Jesus, then it's, then it's not Jesus and it's not good theology. And so I said, God, what, what do you want me to teach you? What did you teach Jesus that would be applicable to this congregation for this moment? And, and I was led to Luke chapter 10. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to just read through a very familiar passage in Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan. And we're going to pull out some things that I think are relevant to where we're at today as a church, as a community. 
Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question to ask. And if you don't know the answer to that, then you need to be asking that question today. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. who had stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he had come to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii, which is about two days worth of wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This amazing teaching of Jesus. Now we've got to understand some things to begin this. What is the foundational elements that we all have to understand? Get on the same page. Number one, Jesus was a Jew. Hopefully that doesn't surprise you. His mom was a Jew. His daddy was a Jew. Uh, The lineage of King David, he was Jew, okay? And so Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching a bunch of Jewish men. And so this lawyer was also a Jew, and he's questioning Jesus. So he is a Jew surrounded by a bunch of Jews. Now what we have to understand is that the, the story talks about two Jews. It talks about a priest and a Levite, both Jewish. But then it also talks about a Samaritan, and we have to understand what's the significance of a Samaritan, as we're understanding the context of the story. And you need to understand that Samaritans and Jews were like oil and water. They hated one another. They could not stand one another. That they had the same roots dating hundreds of years back, but at some point they had separated into two kingdoms. The Samaritans had intermarried and started to worship other gods. The Jews had been captured, been taken back, and now they were still the pure race. And because of this, there was this animosity anger, rage against one another that had gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. A Samaritan was not to talk to a Jew. A Jew was not to talk to a Samaritan. You never had any dealings with one another. And the men that Jesus was speaking to, they all would have understood the context of the story based on the Jews and the Samaritans. And so Jesus starts out the story. He said, there's two men. There's a priest And there's a Levite. Both of them are walking down the same road, this this 17-mile road between Jerusalem and Jericho that was known to be pretty dangerous. They're walking on this road, and they see a man who is in need. And as soon as they see the man who is in need, they recognize that, they're aware. Then they take their little rear end across the street, and they begin to walk, and they have no attention to this man, and it gave him no time of day. Now, now, there's some reasons why Jesus would have used this. Now, first off, a, a priest in this culture was kind of the, the man above all men. In the religious hierarchy, he was at the top. He was the one that did all the religious obligations. He's the one that gave the sacrifices. He's the one that was kind of like setting the tone and the example for everybody else to follow. So the priest was the premier Jewish man. 
under the priest, though, would have been a, a Levi. Just one step down, one rung down from a priest was the Levi. And the Levites prided themselves on knowing the law. Now, now what's really interesting, if you think about this, Jesus is speaking to a lawyer who knew the Mosaic law. And so a, a lot of scholars believe that this man that Jesus was interacting with, he was actually a Levite. And so as Jesus is teaching, he actually takes this man's identity as a Levi and actually weaves him into the story. A man who knew the law, a man who was expected to carry out the law, both of which. And so if you were a Jewish man or woman listening to Jesus, you would have been like, hey, for sure the priest is going to help this man because he knows the law. He knows how to walk in the law. He knows God and he knows God's heart. And so he would help. But the story says that the priest actually walked in their side. And then he said, okay, well, we still have a chance that the Levites coming. And I know those Levites, they, they love people really well. And so he's going to go and help. And, and then the Levite, he walks across the road as well. And we have to ask the question, what would have been the reason why these two men who knew the scriptures would have left this men for dead? And I think the one word that you could sum up is fear. Fear kept these men from helping this man. Fear is what drove them to go to the other side of the road to continue down the path. I think there was a lot of things they were afraid of, and we're not going to get into all of them because we're really just kind of looking at it from our lens, but, but, but we know the road was pretty dangerous. And so the first question that these men would have thought is, man, what if I go over there and I get robbed as well? I'm fearful for my own life. I'm fearful for my own physical well-being. And so maybe I shouldn't even venture over there because what if I help and I get hurt and I get taken advantage of as well. Valid concern. But I think the other fear for them would have been this fear of being interrupted, this fear of being inconvenienced. You see, we, we know that both men, they were headed from A to B. They had a mission, they had a plan, they had a schedule, they had a calendar. And they were on their way. And so when they came across this man, he presented them with a challenge. Do I potentially get interrupted? Do I potentially inconvenience myself to help? Or do I just take a left and walk on the other side of the road and act like nothing happened and then end up where I was supposed to go to begin with? You see, it was a big deal for a priest or a Levite to come in contact with a corpse or a dead person. The Levitical law actually says that if you come into contact, and, and some actually say if your shadow actually crosses a dead body, then you are deemed unclean, and you have to go on a seven-day cleanse. And that's not a juice cleanse. That's a real cleanse where you've got to do specific things. You've got to separate yourself from your uh, community. You've got to go through a bunch of things. And so that would have been seven days the priest couldn't have done his job. Everyone was dependent on him. And so seven days of having to take time off, nobody there to do his job, it would have been costly for the community. And so maybe he was thinking, man, like, I don't want that. I don't want to put anybody else out. And so I don't want to be interrupted. I don't want to be inconvenienced. And maybe you've had that same thought. I see the person there. I'm aware of this person in need in my life, but, but I had a plan. I've got to be somewhere. I've got to take my kids somewhere. I've got a 401k I've got to worry about. I've got certain things I've got to do. And so I'm just going to put my head over here and act like there's nothing happening there. That's pretty much what the Levi and the priest did. And then we get to the, uh, the Samaritan in the story who all of the Jewish men who were listening to Jesus would have hated. They would have looked at him as the, as, as the enemy. 
And it says that this man, just like the other two, they were aware of the man in need, yet he didn't cross over. He actually went to the man in need, bound him up, took care of his wounds, and took him on his own donkey and took care of him at an inn. The minds of the Jewish men would have just exploded. And they probably would have been pretty mad at Jesus. Because they were associating themselves with the Levi or the priest. And now their enemy, the one on the other side of the barrier, the one they have hated for generations, is now made the hero. And for the Samaritan to do this, he would have had to cross several boundaries, several barriers to, to be able to go to this Jewish man. Remember, Samaritans and Jews, no mixing, but, but this Samaritan, he went to a Jewish man. He would have crossed ethnicity. He would have crossed religious. He would have crossed cultural barriers. He would have crossed the inconvenience, the interruption. He would have crossed the barrier of cost. And he would have crossed the barrier of the crowd mentality. See, it would have been easy to say, man, nobody else is stopping to help this guy. So I'm just going to be like everybody else. And I'm just going to go along with the flow. So, So for him to step off of his path and down to this man in need, he had to step outside of his comfort zone. He had to blow up some barriers that kept other people from helping this man. And this Samaritan who the Jewish listeners hated, he immediately became the hero. Now, there's some things that we can learn about this one side of the road or the other side of the room, the road. So if, if Darren is, is a guy who is in need of help and he's down here, if I'm like the Samaritan or if I'm like the, the priest and the Levite, I'm going to see him in need and I'm going to walk over here and be as far away from him as I can be. And something happens when I'm on the other side of the road and I'm looking across at Darren, something happens. I only have one perspective and that is my perspective. I don't know his perspective. I don't know what it's like to be in his shoes. I don't know what it's like to look from his angle, his vantage point. I only see him from my perspective. And, and I also, I find it easy to make Darren an object, that he becomes a problem that I don't really want to hassle with because I don't really know Darren because I'm all the way on the other side of the road. It becomes easy for me to become numb to whatever need, whatever sadness, whatever struggle is Darren's going through because I don't even know exactly because I'm looking at it from a distance. I'm all the way over here. And so I really become numb to any grief, any pain that he's feeling because I'm all the way on the other side of the road. And when I'm on this side of the road, it's really easy for me to make me numero uno. It's all about me, my schedule, my calendar, my desires, it's all focused on me. And that's how the Levi and that's how the priests were. But, but then the Samaritan comes along and the Samaritan doesn't cross the road. He actually goes to the man. He gets right up close to Darren. And when I am on the same side and when I am with somebody who is in need, I can actually see things a little different than I did when I was on the other side of the road. I now have a perspective that I had I didn't have before. Now I know him. I know what he's doing and I can see the world from where he is at. That's where the Samaritan was. And, and what I find out is when I go to the person who is in need, when I, when I go to the side of the road, it's really hard for me to make them an object because the problem becomes a person. And I can't just chalk them up to, hey, they're a problem. They're a project for somebody else. No, it's a real person who is made in the creation, the creator. He is the, in the image of God, just like I am when I'm standing beside him. And it's really hard for me just to say, hey, Darren, tough luck, man. This is how the dice roll. 
Good luck. Pat you on the butt. Go ahead. If I've been with him and if I've heard his story. And what happens, it's really hard for me to also focus on me if I'm standing with him. And this is what the Samaritan did. Went off his path and engaged with another, changing his perspective, changing how he felt, changing the life, really, of the person that was on the side of the road. Ernest told me between services that Martin Luther King said this, that the difference between the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan is when the Levite and the priest showed up, they said, what is it going to cost me? When the Samaritan showed up, they asked, what is it going to cost that man if I don't stop? That's a good word. That's a really good word. And so I was, as I was thinking about this and, and my experiences with the football team and my dorm and my best friend Antonio and the black community, uh, I was also thinking, man, what other things in my life have I been on one side of the road, but something's happened that's changed my perspective, that's changed how I engage and how I think of other people. And I was thinking about in Ohio when I was at a prayer night. And we were having some open prayer and a man shows up who I knew who was married and had two kids and he comes up to me and he says, Derek, I want you to pray with me. I'm gonna tell you something I've never told anybody else. And he began to tell me that although he's married, he struggles daily with same-sex attraction. And he struggles with homosexual thoughts and his plea to the Lord was, Lord, don't let my kids have to deal with the same thing I'm dealing with. Some of us would kind of push him away. <laughs> don't, don't get too close to me. What if you're thinking something about me? That's, you know, that's pretty normal thoughts for most of us. By the grace of God, in that moment, the only thing I knew to do was to give him a huge bear hug. And I held him as he sobbed in my chest. And we prayed together. And I recognize now, looking back, that I had crossed over to the side of the road where he was at. And I was able to engage him and love on him and speak truth and life into him. And because I had engaged with him, I now had a different perspective. And so when I cross other people that are struggling with homosexuality or embracing homosexuality, I now view them as created beings in the image of God, that God loves them just as much as he loves me. And then another paradigm was shifted when I got to work and I was in the corporate world and I had a good friend, Usama, who was a practicing Muslim. He wasn't just a token show up. No, he was actually practicing Muslim, carried out all of them, did Ramadan, everything. Great guy. I, I found that I actually liked this guy. And he was Muslim. Maybe that doesn't fit into your theology. But I actually liked this guy. He was really good at what he did. He was really, really good, great leader. And so I began to engage with him. And my paradigm started to shift. My, my understanding, my stereotypes of Muslims began to shift that I began to see them as real people who God loves just as much as he loves me. And then just a few months ago, one of the girls from our church, Elizabeth, she coordinated a group of us to go to the Katy Mosque in Katy to, to interact with some Muslims there to see what they're all about, what is their religion about, to have an understanding. So she was asking people to come if you want to come to this side of the road and engage. And so I said, man, I've never been to a mosque before, 30-some years old, never done that. That would be, I think, healthy for me. Because I view from a distance those people, right? They, and they're not us, they're they. And so I said, I would love to go. And they gave us this amazing tour. They explained how they do the prayers, why they do the prayers, the humility and bowing. It's really some beautiful things. 
and we walked away from that having a better respect for those people as people. It really helped me that, that, that Muslims aren't just a problem to be fixed or a problem to be killed, but they're people that God loves. They have real faces, real eyes, real smiles, real handshakes, and real stories. And, and wouldn't you know, just this last week, they actually reached out to me. And they said, hey, we're wrapping up our fast, and we want to celebrate with you and honor y'all, and we have a gift basket for you. And so I received on behalf of all y'all, I hope that doesn't offend you, if it does, I'm sorry. Um, we can talk later. But I received the gift basket, and, and I said, hey, I can't meet you now, but we'd love to meet again. We are always welcome at our church. And she says, you know what? I'm headed to London, but when I get back, I'm going to bring a group of my friends, and we're going to come to your church, and we're going to see what you do because you came to our church. See, does that fit into the Jesus that you know? Because what Jesus told this man when he said, Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? He tells this story and then he ends by looking at this Jewish lawyer and he says, uh, who was the man who was the neighbor? And, and the very smart, very intelligent lawyer in his cocky little way probably said, it was the man that showed mercy. He didn't even say the Samaritan. He couldn't bring himself to say, it was the man I hate, the Samaritan. He said, no, it was the man who showed mercy that was the neighbor. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, you go and do the same. Now, I think many of us in this room were a little overwhelmed by what's happening in the world. Like, what, what can I do? Little old me, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I'm a corporate guy. Uh, I don't even have a job right now because of the market. Like, wherever you're at, you probably are sitting there saying, man, this is a bigger problem than, than I can tackle. I don't even know where to begin. But I think the, the words of Jesus are, are where we begin. He says, you go and do likewise. And what I love about Jesus, he didn't just give these empty teachings. He actually said, you know what? Hear my teaching, but, but better yet, look at my life. He says, if you want to be the one that gives mercy, then you just follow me because I'm giving out mercy. I'm breaking down barriers all over the place. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus of the Bible. He crossed all kinds of barriers that would make people blush today. He crossed gender barriers, he crossed economic, he crossed religious, cultural, political, racial. He crossed all kinds of barriers in order that he could extend love. And so what Jesus tells us today is, hey, just follow me. You go and do likewise, show mercy. And so what Jesus did, he actually gives us the baton of showing mercy, gives us the baton of us going to those that nobody else loves he gives us the baton to love in his name. And what's interesting about this, very specifically, is that the Samaritan was on a very specific path. And on that path is where that man was. So listen, just take a deep breath, is you're not called to love every single person on every single road. This is what Jesus says. You're on a path. You're on a road. You've got influence that your pastor doesn't have. You've got a family that your pastor doesn't have. You have a road. And what I'm calling you to do is love the person on your road. Love the person that's in front of you. Don't try to love every single person. You just love the person in front of you. That is something that we all can do. That is something that we can bite off and not be intimidated by. And as we look at love, what's it look like to extend love we could preach this sermon a thousand times in a thousand different ways, but 
if you're looking for something really just kind of help practically say that everybody say awe, awe, awe. It's like awesome, A-W-E. If you're taking notes, write this down. The A is for awareness. If I'm gonna love like Jesus has called me to love, if I'm gonna be the difference in this world that I long to see, then it begins with awareness. And I believe that the internal awareness is where we've got to begin. What is going on in here? What is going on here? Do I have prejudices? It's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Do I, do I feel like somebody's not worthy of the love of God? And does that make sense with the Bible? Awareness. And for me to be aware, I've got to be honest. And so some of us are like, man, I don't, I don't know if I can be honest with God. You can be. That's actually what he says. He says, come to me. You, you tell me what you believe. You tell me that. You confess that. And I'm going to speak truth into you. And then you just align with me. And so it requires us to be honest with God. First off, what's going on here? What's going on here? And then I've got to be aware. What is God doing around me? See, I can't just put my head in the sand like an ostrich. I can't just turn off the news and hope nothing is going to infiltrate my body. No, it says that we should be aware of what is God doing around me? Who's in need in my community? Who's in need in my church? Who's in need at my workplace? I've got to first come aware because if I'm never aware, then I'm never going to do anything. So I've got to be first, A, aware. Number two, I've got to be willing. Willing. You see, this is the difference between the the priest and the Levi and the Samaritan. They weren't willing. He was willing. He's the one that helped. And so that willingness, it comes by telling God, God, I really don't want to engage. I really don't want to step out. I don't want to do this or that. I don't want to love them. But in prayer, I ask God, God, will you grow my heart? Will you grow my love? Will you grow my affection? Will you make me and conform me into your image? And so I become more willing. And we see this beautifully by Jesus before he went to the cross. What did he go? He went and prayed. And he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. You see, he decided to commit before he ever got to the event. And I think some of us in this room today, we need to say, Right now, I'm committing to extending love, even if it's going to cost me, even if it's going to inconvenience me, even if it's going to put me outside of the comfort zone. I am going to love. I'm willing to do so. God, you just give me an opportunity. And then the E, the final E, is for engage. The first two are really prayer-focused. It's God, change me, grow me, challenge me, give me a love for this. But the E is engage, and that's where obedience comes in. Because I can be willing all day long, and if I never step out when God says to go, then I'm not obedient, I'm not engaging, and nothing ever happens. And so when that door opens to engage, we're called to step in. Now, let me just really clarify something. When we go to the other side of the road, we're not saying that we agree full-heartedly that we have the same beliefs as the other person. So hear me. That's not what we're saying. So when I said I engage and we are to go to the side where somebody is struggling with homosexuality or embracing, I'm not saying that I actually agree or condone what they're doing. I'm just saying I see them as a person created by God for his glory, and I'm going to treat them like that, even if we don't agree. The same with those of another faith. I, I, I don't believe that the Islam faith has Jesus figured out, but that doesn't prevent me from loving them and giving hope and life to them. And so just because we disagree doesn't mean we have to dehumanize. And some of us need to hear that because maybe it's a political thing, maybe it's a gender thing, maybe it's a race thing. Just because you disagree doesn't mean you have to dehumanize the other person. You can still love them. So today, I just want to ask you just a real basic question as we wrap up here. 
is what would it look like for you to extend love like this Samaritan did? To be aware, to be willing, and then to engage. What would it look like if all 1,000 of us in the Spring Branch campus went out into our jobs, our normal everyday jobs, and lived this out? What would it look like? I guarantee Houston would take notice. Because what I know is that there is no mass change without an individual change. That there's no corporate revival without a personal revival. And so it begins with you. You can't control everything. But you're accountable for what you do, what you think, what you say. And how you engage with God. And so where in your life do you need to recognize I'm on this side of the road, but God has called me over there. And where today do you need to confess that? And you need to start taking steps back to engage with what God's called you to just like the Samaritan. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of anger and rage, hatred, that you are with us, that your truth never changes, that your goodness never changes. Lord, thank you for loving me and for your grace that's shown me time and time again where I have limited your love by my thoughts of another. Lord, I ask that you would just supernaturally grace us with an ability to see ourselves honestly today, that we would speak in truth to you about what we believe about you, what we believe about other people, and we confess that, and we would receive your truth back in the scriptures and through prayer, and that we would conform ourselves into the image of Jesus, and we would love this city and change this city in the name of Jesus for his glory. Amen.